You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Google warns 14,000 Gmail users that Fancy Bear has probably been after their passwords. Bin12, a fast-running ransomware group, is after hospitals and healthcare providers' money. Black Matter remains active against the agriculture sector. Our Evil is back and talking on the Ramp forum, but so far it's getting a chilly reception. Twitch traces its vulnerability to a server misconfiguration. David DeFore from Webroot wonders about cracking down on crypto. Our guest is Jeff Dilio from NCC on mastering container security. And Group IB's CEO is charged with treason. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, October 8th, 2021. On Wednesday, Google's Threat Analysis Group distributed an unusually high number of warnings to about 14,000 Gmail users, indicating that they may presently be targeted by a government cyber espionage organization. The attempts have been attributed, Bleeping Computer and the Record Report, to APT28, that is, Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU. A TAG member, Shane Huntley, tweeted about the implications of such warnings, Google probably blocked the attempts, but you should take prudent steps to protect yourself now because you are a potential target for the next attack. The warning itself begins with the Screamer headline, Government-backed attackers may be trying to steal your password, and goes on to say, quote, There's a chance this is a false alarm, but we believe we detected government-backed attackers trying to steal your password. This happens to less than 0.1% of all Gmail users. We can't reveal what tipped us off because the attackers will take note and change their tactics. But if they are successful at some point, they could access your data or take other actions using your account. The warning concludes with a few recommendations like advising the recipients to keep their instance of Microsoft Word up to date or suggesting that they open Word documents with Google Docs. Google sends these warnings out in batches, and a warning indicates that Gmail blocked the attempt it detected. The reason for sending the warnings in batches, as opposed to in onesies and twosies as the malicious emails are detected, is to avoid giving the bad actors, in this case Fancy Bear, unnecessarily granular and potentially useful insight into Mountain View's defensive tactics, techniques, and procedures. Security firm Mandiant yesterday released a report on Fin12, 
an aggressively financially motivated ransomware gang noteworthy for its concentration on healthcare organizations. FIN12 concentrates on ransomware proper and hasn't followed the broader criminal trend toward double extortion. It's also a heavy user of initial access brokers hired in the criminal-to-criminal market. The group is also a user of the Ryuk strain of ransomware. It's quick in its operations, Rapid Ryuk, as Dark Reading called it, usually spending at most three days in its victims' networks before issuing its ransom demand. That speed, Mandiant thinks, distinguishes FIN12 from other Ryuk users. That speed is also conducive to volume. FIN12 is believed to have demanded between $1 and $25 million apiece from its victims, and again, it's shown no compunction whatsoever about damaging healthcare organizations. If even a small fraction of victims pay, FIN12 has done well, financially speaking. FIN12 appears to be a Russophone group and probably based in Russia. Its victims have been concentrated in North America, but there are recent signs that the gang is branching out to Europe and Asia. It doesn't hit Russia, or usually the former Soviet republics in the near abroad, a group of countries sometimes known by the name of the moribund association that connected them, the Commonwealth of Independent States. Mandiant thinks FIN12's position in the ransomware underworld reflects a trend toward specialization in gangland. As they put it, quote, This specialization reflects the current ransomware ecosystem, which is comprised of various loosely affiliated actors partnering together, but not exclusively with one another. End quote. NBC News reviews the current series of Black Matter ransomware attacks against the U.S. agricultural sector. Two Iowa-based grain cooperatives, Farmers Cooperative Company and The New Cooperative, and Minnesota-based co-op Crystal Valley are known to have been disrupted. The timing of the attacks is troubling, coming as they do around the time of the harvest. The affected organizations have been reticent about sharing information, in part due to concerns over potential litigation, and some speculate that there may be other publicly undisclosed farming sector victims. Flashpoint researchers are tracking the resurgence of the well-known Arrival ransomware gang in the Groove Collective's criminal RAMP forum. Quote, The Arrival profile on RAMP was created on October 6th. In a post underneath its profile, Arrival advertised their affiliate program in detail and claimed that their practices are anonymous and secure. Arrival followed up their post with a claim that it will wait until November to begin actively recruiting affiliates on RAMP. Cybersecurity analysts note that this post follows a report that Arrival was scamming their affiliates through a back door in their ransomware code. End quote. Apparently, the other crooks and lowlifes who disport themselves in RAMP aren't all ducky with Arrival's apparent appearance there. They don't trust them because of the way our evil went into temporary occultation earlier this summer. These others expressed caution and contempt for our evil's reappearance. There are accusations circulating in ramp that our evil bugged out because it suffered some major security problem, and some have gone even farther, speculating that our evil has been taken over and is now being run by some law enforcement organization using the gang's name and account as a provocation and an investigatory tool. Our evil denies this, of course, and says it's totally official. 
in a criminal kind of way. Twitch blogs that its attacker gained access via an error in one of its server configuration changes. Yesterday, the streaming service advised users that out of an abundance of caution, we have reset all stream keys. Depending on which broadcast software you use, you may need to manually update your software with this new key to start your next stream. Twitch had earlier explained, We have learned that some data was exposed to the Internet due to an error in a Twitch server configuration change that was subsequently accessed by a malicious third party. Our teams are working with urgency to investigate the incident. As the investigation is ongoing, we are still in the process of understanding the impact in detail. We understand that this situation raises concerns, and we want to address some of those here while our investigation continues. End quote. A Washington Post essay sees the attack on Twitch as part of a bigger trend, a resurgence of hacktivism, and the new hacktivists' interest in picking their targets from big tech. Twitch is an Amazon subsidiary. And finally, Russian authorities have now, according to Reuters, formally charged Group IB founder and CEO Ilya Sakov with treason. Medusa cites various official Russian media to the effect that Sokov has specifically been charged with disclosure of information that contains state secrets. Further information won't be forthcoming since the matter is regarded as classified. Treason charges come with a potential sentence of up to 20 years. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. 
Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Whether it's Docker, Linux, or Kubernetes, containers continue their growth in popularity, but not without concerns about configuration and security. Jeff Dilio is a technical director at NCC Group, and I checked in with him for his take on container security. I think that containers themselves are in a fairly good place at this point. There's always room for improvement, and, and things, I think, are getting better. I think where things are maybe falling short is in how people configure them or how people use them as part of larger systems that then configure them in ways that maybe aren't so great. Well, uh, let's dick into those one at a time there. I mean, let's start with configuration. What are some of the pitfalls there? Containers, assuming you're, we're referring to normal Linux containers, uh, which are more of a concept. They are a construct of various Linux features around isolating programs. And not all of them are specifically designed around security specifically. And so you need to be careful when you combine them. Most of the container runtimes, as we call them, like Docker, have gotten this down pretty good by default. But you can still configure your containers to run with like full admin privileges on the host. You can configure them in ways that might be needed for enabling certain pieces of functionality, but might themselves be essentially equivalent to admin on the host, or could be used to break out and get admin on the host. So we kind of consider that equivalent. There are certain things like if you were to, for example, mount your host file system as read-writable into the container, well, the container could probably mess with like all of your users' password hashes uh, and then, you know, log into that system possibly or mess with service configurations to automatically run code as root outside of the container on the host, things, things like that. that. That's a bit of a stretch in like someone doing that. But those kinds of things, even there are smaller innocuous things that can also be bad, but they get a bit technical. And to what degree are those kind of, you know, hidden traps? I mean, are, are, we, are we at the point where the, the systems people are using are, are pretty well configured to kind of put proper guardrails on the users? I'm not sure it's really something that, that about the systems being configured. In some cases it is, but mm. in general, uh, something like Docker or Container D, uh, which Docker uses under the hood, Kubernetes uses under the hood these days, basically is just fully privileged to do what it wants most of the time. And it, hmm. it ends up being on how it's, it's told to create containers. And so if your whatever system you're using to give access to uh, developers or ops people to create those containers allows them to configure kind of whatever access they want, that can be bad. Uh, there are various systems for access controls, but uh, certain things are at lower levels where just access to them in the first place means you can tell them to do anything. So a lot of the security in locking these things down is more in placing abstraction layers between the user and those things that kind of mediates what they're allowed to tell it to do. So what are your recommendations then? I mean, how, how do organizations go about uh, configuring these from the outset? But then also, I, I suppose there's a certain amount of 
auditing that has to go on as you go? So there are best practices and there are auditing tools and they often follow against uh, best practices like CAS Benchmark. And then there are kind of the nitty gritty of access control review. There's kind of a whole series of things that can be looked at. I would kind of break it down into maybe two or three groups, maybe four, depending on how deep you want to go, where you have, uh, there is the configuration and the access controls and who can do what and who can get in and and what they're allowed to do, right? Uh, Then there is the actual things that are running and how they are, how privileged they are and, and what risk that poses if they were to get compromised. And then there is the code that actually gets run and how that's uh, assembled and built. And if you're handling your dependencies properly or running untrusted images or allow untrusted images to be run potentially. And then there is the lower, lower level of configuration of all the components of the system and what's accessible and whatnot. And so some of those things are fairly reasonable for organizations to do themselves and some of them not so much. That's Jeff Dilio from NCC Group. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He's the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot. David, always great to have you back. Um, You know, we've seen some uh, noises coming from inside the federal government that they might be doing some cracking down on how some of these cryptocurrency exchanges work and trying to go at things like money laundering and so forth. What is your take on the progress we're seeing here? Well, I I think it's Interesting. Uh, I think you have to do something. You can't not do anything just because you don't know what to do. And I think it is a good first step. I think from a money laundering perspective, they definitely need to do something. Never mind, should crypto be regulated or not? That's a whole SEC, you know, financial industry discussion. But from a purely cybersecurity perspective, you know, we've seen a huge shift away from a market for stolen credit cards. Um, you know, back 10 years ago, David, when we were, you know, getting into this industry, stolen credit cards were a big deal. Stolen bank accounts were a big deal because that's the way cyber criminals got paid. They would, they would pay to get credit cards or bank accounts. And then when they did some bad action, they would use that stolen credit card or stolen bank account to execute their transactions. And with the advent and just the, the sheer growth of, of, um, crypto, We've seen, you know, the shift from that. So what's ironic is we've seen a shift away from people stealing accounts and credit cards to using crypto, which is good. But unfortunately, that's empowered ransomware because nobody calls up and asks for a check for ransomware. They want they want Bitcoin. Right. And, and I mean, I think it's fair to say that the cryptocurrencies are really major enablers when it comes to things like ransomware. So, I, you know, I can't help wondering do we need some sort of increased oversight over this? I, I guess the the devil's in the details, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine enabling something like that without hurting some of the things that make crypto crypto. 
You're spot on. And, and this is where we need some really smart people to think about this um, so that we don't. And, and I'm not big anti-government or anything like that. I, you know, I'm, I'm all about things that make sense. And I do think there needs to be some, some understanding, some slight regulation on this. But how do you not go too far and, and like you say, eliminate what the value of a cryptocurrency is? Um, and I know a lot of people in government would like to just shut all cryptocurrency down because they can't control it. But there is a middle ground somewhere. It does help a lot of folks in in you know third world countries or countries where there is an instable or unstable um, currency. So there's a lot of good cryptocurrencies. Do the trick will be how do we find that balance? Because and and do we need to find the balance? Is a, is a discussion we should have as well. Are we knee jerk reacting to something where we should be fixing the ransomware problem, not fixing the problem of how people are paying the ransom? I, I, I mean, there's a discussion that should be had there. Because honestly, and David, just to add to that, as I'm thinking through this, I promise you, if they stop the ability to use crypto to pay for ransomware attacks, we'll go right back to having bank accounts stolen and credit cards stolen. And they'll start using, there'll be an industry for that again. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess, uh, you know, looking to have it be more of a speed bump than anything. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, unfortunately, smart people on both sides of this. And uh, and I say, unfortunately, because no matter what the smart people on the side trying to prevent this uh, ransomware and crypto being used for nefarious reasons, there's smart people on the other side who are going to figure out other ways to do it and and find some other barter system or, or something of that nature to, to actually transact these these things. It won't go away. But I guess, like I, like we said at the beginning here, You've got to figure out, you got to do something. You can't just let it keep happening. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Great being here, David. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's episode of Research Saturday and my conversation with Matt Stafford from Prevalian. We're going to be discussing his team's report, diving deep into UNC 1151's infrastructure, Ghostwriter, and beyond. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.